The BS Report is a free-flowing conversation that occasionally touches on mature subjects. The BS Report. The BS Report with Bill Simmons. Welcome to the BS Report. Taping this on a Friday morning. It is Fast 7 Day. I have not seen it yet. Fast 7 is coming out. We're going to have Wesley Morris come up in a little bit and talk about uh, Fast 7 and a few other things. He's seen it. I have not. I'm supposed to see it with Adam Carolla at some point. We've seen four, five, and six together. We've done podcasts after every one of them. This one's been a little harder to figure out because Adam's apparently really busy, which I don't totally believe because I see what his output is. But basically the only day he could see it was Easter Sunday. And we sent a bunch of emails back and forth saying, eh, let's go at 3 o'clock on Easter Sunday and then we'll tape a pod after. And I'm thinking like, well, first of all, it's Easter. Most people go and eat on Easter with their families. That's kind of one of the things you do on Easter. And then second, we'd need a crew on Easter to come in and and tape the uh, the video and the audio. That might be a problem since it's a holiday at all. So I don't know what's going to happen. Um, we're going to negotiate back and forth, and we'll probably end up doing a podcast about nine weeks later. So that's going on. Uh, Wesley's coming up in a little bit. I have a bunch of things to talk about with him. I wanted to talk about ESPN.com 20th anniversary. Uh, they've been celebrating it all week on uh, on ESPN.com. Had a couple pieces. I want to talk about my experiences with ESPN.com. Just, I get this email all the time. How did they find you? Where'd you come from? What's your story? So I just thought I'd just put it in podcast form for 15 minutes. Just once and for all. So you can just hear it from me. Um, I, were, I graduated from college in 1992. And then I went to school for journalism, graduated 93 from BU, and then I wanted to get a sports column. And I just assumed I'd had a column in college for four years at Holy Cross. Um, pretty much the entire time. I got it when I was a freshman in college. It was called The Ramblings. Um, somewhere along the line, I thought maybe it's something I wanted to do for a living. Went to journalism school and just assumed I'd come out and I would get a column. So I got a job um, working as like an intern slash high school reporter for the Boston Herald coming out of, coming out of grad school, answering phones, doing Chinese food orders, um, answering calls from volleyball coaches like, Hey, uh, so I guess beat uh swamp's got, uh, two sets to nothing. And, you know, just get like, who was this, who had the most hits and stuff like that. So, um, gradually I, I started covering a little bit more and the next year, um, kind of became, I think their lead high school guy. I was doing football and I was doing basketball and baseball and doing some features on things. I wrote a couple op-ed pieces. Um, right my third year at the Herald, I started writing a lot of stuff for the Boston Phoenix, which was a weekly at the time. And I was also looking at the landscape for how the Herald worked. And I just could not figure out how I was going to get a column because at that point, the newspapers were run by unions and I just didn't see anybody leaving. And I was just looking at the landscape and, and just thinking, how am I going to get to where I want to go? I, this, this is, I'm going to go crazy. And at that time I had taken a job like with benefits where I was working like on the copy, copy desk, like copying stuff and all kinds of, de- uh, handling, uh, different agate on the, on the scoreboard page and all this different stuff. And it was working a lot of nights and, um, not writing as much as I wanted. And, um, I had really put my eggs in the Phoenix basket and they changed editors all of a sudden they didn't want sports. 
and everything just kind of came together like in, in late March, April, 96, where I was just like, this is, I, I, I'm going to be here three years from now doing the same thing. I don't, I don't know how to get to where I want to go. There was really no internet at that point. And, um, the internet was, you know, underground and people had email. I don't even think I got an AOL account until like the summer of 96. So I made the decision to leave and I was going to try to freelance and it was going to go great. I was going to freelance for Boston Magazine and Boston Phoenix, all these places. Three months passed. I don't get a single freelance job other than I think I got one feature for the Worcester Phoenix. So at this point, I'm 26 years old and my writing career has just gone down in flames. I have no idea what I'm going to do. So I start bartending because I need to make money because I have an apartment in Charlestown. I need to pay the rent somehow. And I'm getting too old to ask my mom for money. And basically bartended for the next year. And I I didn't really write anything. I had uh, I created this stupid TV show and I wrote a bunch of episodes for it. I had no idea what I was doing. I was writing the episodes of Microsoft Word. It's It's, it's got to be terrible. I'm afraid to look at it. And was bartending. I was getting up at, you know, one in the more one in the afternoon every day. I was staying up till three, four in the morning. I was hanging out with all people who worked in different bars and just going out and just being a, a putz. And at some point, uh, I realized that, you know, I wasn't ready to give up the writing thing yet. And there was a site in AOL called Digital City Boston. AOL had broken out all of the cities into digital newspapers, and I decided they had this guy. He was called the movie guy. He was called uh, Boston's movie guy. His name was John Black, I think. I think his name was John Black. And he just wrote movie reviews and he had this little page and it was like Boston's movie guy. And he, and he was, you know, basically branded as their movie guy. So I thought, wow, I, I could be Boston sports guy. This is great. I grew up here. I love all the teams. I live in Boston now. Um, I'll create a sports column for them. So I started badgering the editor of the site and a couple months passed and he's interested. I met him and it might happen. And they're, now they're going to build the site. And now we're talking it's spring of, 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 uh, 1997. At that point, digital city, Boston is only available AOL only. And that's it. So we make a deal. He's going to give me a chance for three months and I'm going to make 50 bucks a week for three months, which I didn't care because I already had a side, I had, was making enough money working at the restaurant. And I was like, I, you know, I'll do anything for a chance. Another month passes. Are they going to build the site? What's going on? I'm badgering. I'm badgering. Finally in May, um, the site is ready. And I had this whole plan for all the stuff I want to write. And my idea at the time was I was going to, if I'm going to go down in flames, I'm going to go down in flames like me. I'm not going to try to write like traditional newspaper columnists. I'm going to try to write from a fan's perspective. I'm going to write about the stuff my buddies and I talk about. I knew I wanted to do a mailbag because I wanted to, you know, David Letterman was a huge idol of mine growing up. And I knew, I knew I could, uh, I knew there was some way to involve readers, much like Letterman used to involve his viewers and kind of bounce off the readers and, and, you know, in my head, I was like, they'll send me emails and I'll use them and then I'll write funny responses. So I had that. I knew I had the ramblings, which now has basically turned into Twitter, but at the time was like a one-liner column, which I used to love. Mike Lupica used to do those in the daily news in the eighties. And I always was, I'll write a one-liner column. I knew I wanted to do NFL picks because 
I used to, I grew up, I love Pete Axtom, who wrote a gamut comp for Inside Sports. And at the time, it, somebody in the Globe had uh, an NFL picks column where they just picked every game. I can't remember who. It wasn't very good. And I thought I could do better than that guy. And then I knew I wanted to write a lot about NBA because I loved the NBA. I'd been going to games. And I knew I was going to write about the Boston teams. And I knew I was going to write a ton of pop culture. So I had this whole plan. My first column was about the Celtics who had just, I think, lost the Duncan lottery. And it was basically like a behind-the-scenes dialogue piece with the Celtics. It didn't go. It wasn't very good. And I think like the – so I started started writing more and more. And uh, I, I remember the NBA finals were that year. It was the year MJ beat Carl Malone. And uh, I had a lot of columns. I was calling Malone the male fraud. It was not not a lot different than what I was doing now. Or what I would do now. Um, so by the summer, I kind of got my feel for it. And I remember that summer I wrote a piece about the the 30 worst sports movies ever. And they ended up putting it on the AOL main page. And all of a sudden, I got a lot of traffic for it. And at that time, it was still AOL only. So it kind of eventually, I kind of figured out what I was doing. And they gave me a different contract. And at some point, it was like they gave me a a year long contract, I think like in summer 98, but for the first 18 months I was doing the site. Um, and I was also doing, uh, all the stuff I was doing at the restaurant. And I think it actually in the fall of 97, we had an NFL picks contest and it was, ten, I picked nine people to go against me in, in NFL picks for that year. I would make the picks. I wrote my picks column. And then we had this separate piece with nine other people making the picks and the winner got something. I can't remember. Two of the people in that picks contest ended up getting married. Another person in there was a 15-year-old kid who was really funny named Jamie Agin, who ended up, we became friends. He became one of the best people in my mailbag. And when he graduated college, um, he became my first intern at ESPN.com and then eventually moved out to LA because I introduced him to Jimmy Kimmel and got a job there. So it was just kind of funny, all this different stuff that happened for that one picks contest. But in the summer of 98, uh, the Boston Globe wrote a piece about the site and about me. Uh, this guy, Howard Manley, wrote a piece. And um, it was the first kind of big break I'd gotten where it was like I, somebody had noticed the site. And at that point, I was pretty hard on, on the media people because that's what you do when you're, you know, when nobody sees you. You, t you always take shots at everybody who's doing better than you. So I was doing a lot of that too. And part of his piece was about like me going after WEI, which was the local radio station which was terrible and is still terrible. Um, me taking a lot of shots at them. And so the piece about that and the site was building enough momentum that I realized that I could probably um, leave all the other stuff I was doing and just throw myself into the site. And that's what I did for the next basically two and a half years. And um, right around 99, I started to really figure out what my voice was. And I started to figure out I remember there, there was two different columns I wrote. I think it was in March of 99. One was I wrote the first column I ever wrote about going to Vegas with my buddies. And it was about the whole weekend being in Vegas with them. And this this epic gambling run we had at, at Treasure Island on a, on a Saturday night with me and my buddy Bish. Where we just – and at that time I had no money. So I'm a, we're at a $10 table and we're betting $25. And it was like the craziest bets you, we could make because it was like they were real stakes. Like if you lost – eight hands you were done for the weekend 
and we just had this crazy one and we're getting drunk and we're winning all our bets and and uh and at some point I go to the bathroom and the undertaker's in there, the wrestler, and we're and we're just peeing next to each other in silence and I'm like wobbling, I'm drunk. And uh and he finishes and he's walking away and I and I just mutter to myself something like uh Wow, I'm up $800 and I'm taking a piss next to The Undertaker. It doesn't get any better than this. And we're the only ones in the bathroom. There's like a four-second pause. And all of a sudden he goes, mmm, sounds like it, and walks out. So I wrote this whole story, and that was like one of like the key stories in that. But just in general, it kind of captured what it was like to go to Vegas when you have no money in your late 20s. And it was one of the first times I was like, I feel like – this this could be something like bigger. Um, I feel like this could appeal to more people than just Boston. And then the other piece I wrote at the time was something about, basically about posses, entourages, because the NBA was big. Everyone had an entourage in the NBA back then. I wrote kind of like, what's the key to being in an entourage? And it was kind of, it was more of a mainstream piece than a Boston piece. And so gradually over those next two years, I figured out how to blend the mainstream stuff with the Boston stuff and the pop culture stuff and all that stuff. And I was working my butt off. I was waking up every morning at like seven in the morning. I was doing this thing called the daily links, which I'd go through all these different websites the whole, the whole day. And I would, I would uh, pick the pieces I liked and I would put them in, I would release them around lunchtime so people could read like the 15, 16 pieces that I really liked from that morning. And the thing was, at that time, it was like a 28K modem. So the sites would load really slow, right? It, it wasn't like it is now. You just click on a site, it comes up. Like you would click on ESPN.com, and it, it would take 30, 45 seconds to load. So I would watch TV shows as I did this. And I think for like two straight years, I was watching uh, either 90210 or ER because they were just rerunning 90210 and ER constantly. I always wanted to have something that wouldn't distract me too much. But would also keep my attention as I was sitting there watching my stupid computer load. So I would just watch the 90210 cycles. They would take like six months to finish or four months, whatever it was. And then it would start over again. They were like juniors in high school. And I would just rewatch that again. Same thing with ER. They would just rerun them. And, uh, and that's what my life was like. I, w- I would All day I would, I would do those links in the morning. I would go to lunch. I would get a big coffee and I would go to Sorrell's Pizza in Charlestown. I would come back and I would try to write my column as fast as possible. And I write three or four columns a week at that time. And that's all I did um, all week, every week, Monday through Friday. It was just working just everything I could to do it, trying to get noticed. And in 2000, ESPN.com launched page two and they were talking about how it was going to be not just sports, but pop culture too. And they had Hunter and they had Ralph Wiley and they had Halberstam and a couple other people. And they had never asked me or approached me or anything. And, you know, a bunch of my readers at that time I had probably, I would say maybe 10,000 loyal readers per day. Um, and also the, Oh, I left out one part when we were AOL only, there was no way to get to the site if you, from the internet. So like my buddies at work couldn't read my pieces unless I forwarded them to to them. So I would forward my AOL pieces to my buddies and then they started forwarding them to buddies. And over the course of like a year and a half, all of a sudden there was this email chain where people kept asking me to be on 
you know, the distribution list. So I had this whatever distribution list of friends and friends of friends and I would send them out and I would send out the column and then I remember a couple of times the the column would get forwarded back to me like, hey, you should read this piece on uh, some stupid movie or whatever. And I'd be like, that's my piece. <laughs> like, you you guys are mailing this back to me. How did this happen? Uh, so anyway, when when AOL, the Digital City Boston, finally went on the internet, then it enabled a lot of people to see my stuff. So by, by summer 2000 or whenever page two was launched, maybe it was like uh, fall or December, I can't remember. They hadn't asked me to be on. And and a Fox Sports had come after me at one point, but then they all of a sudden they cooled off. And and I had three years, and I really felt like I was good at this, and I felt like I had real fans. And I couldn't figure out why there was like some piece missing that I, I was like, am I am I crazy? Like I feel like I could do this for a living. I could have fans. I don't understand. So there's something missing. Like why why hasn't this working out for me? Is this a conspiracy? Um, and like maybe late summer 2000, I remember going to dinner with my girlfriend at the time, was down my wife and my mom and my stepdad, who is in commercial real estate. And, and seriously thinking about, it might be time to give this up. I just turned 30. Um, I'm about to turn 31. Nothing, nothing seems to be happening. I'm freelancing for all these different places, but I'm making you know, 32,000 a year, 35,000 a year. I have friends that are making three, four times as much money as me. Um, I don't know what to do. And, and should, is it maybe time to just say this didn't work out? And everybody convinced me, no, no, you got to give it one more year, one more year. So in February, 2001, they had the ESPYs and I did a running diary of the ESPYs. Running diary was another thing that I used to do all the time. And it was, a guy named Norman Chad used to write for the national and he would do running diaries sometime of just watching a game. And I really liked that format. And I kind of took that format, which is really smart timestamps and tried to blow it out, make it a much bigger, you know, longer piece. And I didn't care about the length of my comms. Cause I grew up reading Peter Gammons and people like that. It took 15 minutes to finish a Peter Gammons com. So it's like, I used to look forward to that 15 minutes. That's great. This is going to be a great 15 minutes for me. So I never cared about, the length of the comp because I figured if it was good enough, somebody would, would be excited that they had something to do for the next 15 minutes. Um, so I did an ESPYs diary in 2001. It was, I think, the second time I'd done it. I'd done one in 99. That wasn't as good. And this one um, in 2001, I, I, I really kind of knew what I was doing at this point. And, um, and it was good and it ended up it started to get forwarded around the ESPN headquarters. And I think a guy named Vince Doria, who just retired, who was a legend, who ran the Boston Globe and ran ESPN, he uh, ended up seeing the thing and it started getting forwarded around the offices. And I was not kind to ESPN in this piece, but I was also justified because the show is terrible. Um, so eventually John Walsh saw it and he became, he, he just became kind of obsessed with, uh, with, with you know, oh, who is this guy? This is interesting. Uh, how can we, whatever. And so um, he started reading me and then he told the page two guys to give, he was like, you got to try this guy out. Now, John Walsh is a legend um, and ended up becoming one of the most important people in my life. But I didn't know that at the time. He's somebody, he'd launched Inside Sports, which was my favorite magazine growing up. 
he became the guy who kind of revitalized, rejuvenated, and recreated SportsCenter. Um, he launched ESPN Magazine, and now he was launching his. He's basically launched Page Two and had gotten heavily involved with ESPN.com. So end of March, I had just done Bob Lobel's show in in Boston, um, which was the the best eleven thirty sports night uh, Sunday sports show, and I wasn't very good. Um, but it was a big moment cause it was like, there was a little bit of a credibility that went with that, that at least I was good enough to be on Bob LaBelle show, or at least I was well known enough locally to be in, in Bob LaBelle show. And, um, so then I got, got this email out of the blue from Kevin Jackson. who was one of the page two editors at the time asking me if I wanted to write a piece about, uh, Nomar who had just blown out his wrist is done for the season. So I ended up writing the Nomar redemption which was kind of like about how Red Sox fans love Nomar and Pedro and we've been losing for decades and decades, but we're holding on to this hope. And I tied it into the Shawshank, um, which is funny because I probably, it's probably one of about 70 columns where I somehow work Shawshank into it, but it's a good column. And and it was a lot different than anything that was on ESPN.com at the time. And when it went up, they led the page with it. Um, I think they might have even led ESPN.com with it, and it was it, it did really well. So they asked me to do another one, and I think the second one I did for them, it was uh, NBA Awards, um, maybe... Uh, oh, no, the second one was Roger Clemens is the Antichrist. Is Roger Clemens the Antichrist? I think that was the second one. That was the second or the third one. I did one with um, an NBA column with awards, movie awards. So by the third one, they had decided they wanted to... Um, to potentially hire me or start using me more. But I was also getting approached by the Boston Herald who wanted me to come back and basically take my website and move it to the Boston Herald and write for them. And they gave me an offer and it was benefits and it was, and, and I was like, well, I have to do this. Like now at that point I was engaged and I was ready. I kind of taken the site as far as I could go. The digital cities had fallen apart and, uh, and, and it, it just seemed like something needed to happen. And I, and I announced I was shutting down my site in June and I was thinking about going to the Herald. So I told my page two editors that, and next thing I know I'm going to Bristol and I meet John Walsh and every, and my buddy Gus who worked at ESPN at the time, who had been trying to get them to look at my stuff for years. And I, like nobody was really that interested And Walsh was, however he saw it was the first one who kind of really pushed them. Um, so I met with him and I was told Walsh is somebody, he waits you out. He'll stare you down. He'll use silence as his weapon. And, uh, and I met, met him and just started talking about inside sports and we just hit it off. And he's like, look, uh, we want you here. Uh, we love what you do. And we want to give you a column on page two, three times a week. Um, offered me this contract, which in retrospect was probably the worst contract in the history of media. It wasn't the money figure as much as they had the option after the first year and after the second year. They basically owned me for three years, but I had no ability to get out. But I was so happy to get any offer, I just grabbed it. And uh, the only thing I asked for was the chance to take off five weeks before I started. So I I wrapped up my site in mid-June. I took five weeks off and just basically planned out how I thought a column would work because at the time 
nobody had had any success whatsoever as a national columnist. Everything was local, just everything. And all right, so what are the reasons for that? Well, if you're a local columnist, you can use all these references and this historical database of all the local teams. Like you're in Boston, you get all these jokes and references you get to pull from Red Sox history, Celtics, Patriots. You get to be really hyper-specific. When you're national, you have to try to appeal to as many people as possible. It's a different of a task. So I, I, I spent those five weeks. I took two weeks off. My buddy Bish got married, went to California with my girlfriend, fiance. Um, and then I spent the next three weeks really hashing out what I wanted to do. And during that time, I wrote a piece about Lenny Bias that I was really proud of, um, freeespin.com. And then I disappeared. And I spent probably three solid weeks sketching out how a column would work to try to appeal to national people. And one of the things I thought was pop culture could replace the local sports part, that I could use the pop culture side um, much the way I use Boston sports to appeal to local people. Everyone follows the same movies, TV shows, all that stuff. I'll do that. I knew I could do mailbags. I knew I had the ramblings. Um, I knew I had NBA. I had to have a constant NBA presence. I knew I wanted to do NFL picks. So I just kind of hashed out how it would go and how a typical week would go. I knew I wanted to blow out sports movies, um, cover every sports movie release like it was a huge thing. And I kind of figured it out. I knew the mailbag was going to be a huge part of everything. And by the time I launched in July, I had a real plan. And it and so I started writing – oh, and fantasy was the other thing because ESPN had no fantasy at the time. So one of the things I wrote in August, like a year after I had started or a month after I had started, was a fantasy football um, – fantasy guy, idiot's guide to fantasy, your fantasy football draft or something like that. And then I also did like a rankings thing too. And it was like nobody wrote about fantasy f- – anything at the time it was like they it was like just for nerds dungeons and dragons people and so you know a lot of it was it was it was a good spot because people were all writing about sports a certain way and the internet was drifting another direction um but also like you know it the stuff did stand out at the time which was good for me and it was going but you know the big thing was the especially that summer like they were editing jokes out they're cutting stuff and I was really starting to feel like I had just sold out and that it was the dumbest move I ever made. I remember I did an idiot's guide to the gold club trial, which is this great trial that happened at the time um, with at a strip joint and probably one of the eight or nine funniest things I've ever written. And they took out like 12, 13 jokes. And I just remember being just devastated. I was like, Oh my God, this is the biggest mistake I've ever made in my life. Why am I with this? But eventually as as the end of the summer and September, October went along, and I didn't really understand this was happening because I'm trapped in Boston, but um, the comms started to take off, and that gave me more leeway and more control over the proceedings. And I was able to write the column I wanted to write. And, you know, after about a year, um, that's, that's I, I knew the column was doing well, but I didn't know how well. Um, I could tell they were promoting me every time I, I wrote. Um, in general, ESPN.com wasn't even close to what it is now. I mean, it's you're talking like 30 times less traffic. Um, but I could tell when I wrote, I, there was a couple times where they led with me over Halberstam. I was like, wow, like how Breaks of the Game is my favorite book ever. This is insane. Um, and somewhere along the line, uh, I, I, I completely melted down in April because 
first of all, I, I had this contract that was the worst contract I ever had outperformed it. Um, I, I, they were gearing the page two around all the stuff I was doing. I was not handling anything well. Um, I'd fully admit that. Um, and I just wanted more security. I was like, I've, I've, I've killed it for you guys. Can you, can you give me a real contract? So I ended up meeting with uh, Walsh and John Skipper, who now runs everything. And um, they gave me a magazine column, which was 680 words, which actually was retroactively probably a mistake because I, I can't even burp in 680 words. Um, and a little more security, all this stuff. And, and they handled it great. And t- from that day forward, I was loyal to Skipper because he didn't have to help me out, and he did. Um, and during that summer, and the column was still going well, um, Jimmy Kimmel reached out to me and he wanted me to write for him. And, um, oh, I should mention, what, going backwards, one other thing, New Orleans for Super Bowl week. Uh, I wrote a piece making fun of New Orleans, just how how kind of lawless and crazy and insane it was to be there for the Super Bowl. And just, I loved it. And it was just, I'd just never been in a place like that. And it was like a, a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek piece. And within a day, everybody in New Orleans wanted to kill me. And that was the first time I realized how much power and breath ESPN.com had because I was getting death threats in my hotel room. And I'm like, oh, my God, what, what's happening? Because my process hadn't changed. I still had the same column writing process that I had had before where you just you turn on your computer, you write something, you hand it in. But now all of a sudden – I was leading the news like ESPN.com columnist kills New Orleans. So that's kind of when I realized that there was real power and breath in the, in the whole ESPN.com experience. Um, so fast forward to the summer, Jimmy Kimmel hires me um, to, to write for his TV show. And I ended up leaving ESPN.com and moving to LA while keeping a, a like I, I wrote every other week basically. And it was, I could not do both. And I loved writing for Jimmy's show and I made, unbelievable friends there and it was the best but um i was reaching a point where i couldn't follow sports well enough to write my calm even on a limited basis and there was this moment when i was on mike tyson we went to with mike tyson in harlem to uh he was feeding his pigeons we were filming a, a piece for him because uh he was hosting the show for a week with jimmy went back when we had guest hosts and uh and i was on the roof with mike tyson and we were shooting it for a video, but I really wanted to be writing a column about it. And I was thinking about it as a writer, not as a TV person. That's when I realized I needed to go back to my column. I felt like I had, had unfinished business with it. And looking back, I, one of the reasons I probably went to Jimmy's show is I was just burned out on the column. I'd been doing it day in, day out for five years, and I, I think I just got a little burned out. Um, so I ended up at, in, in April of 2004, went back to ESPN.com full-time. Um, stayed very close with Jimmy and a whole bunch of other people. It was just, it was what I was meant to do. I felt like was write that column. And, uh, and at that point, ESPN.com was really starting to take off. And the Red Sox in 2004, that's when they had their little run. And, uh, and everything snowballed in September and October that year when the Red Sox, they beat the, they make the playoffs, they beat the Angels. Now, they they're down three nothing to the Yankees. They lose one. Now we have uh, game four, game five, the greatest two day life experience I think I've ever had from sports. Where they they fight back with the Dave Roberts game. Um, then the next day they come back again, over and over again, and 
25 innings over two days and just incredible. And we fend off the Yankees at Fenway Park. And it was amazing. And leave that place at like 1230. I go go to have one beer before I, uh, before I go to uh, try to write about what I just saw. And I'm running an old friend from Holy Cross. And we're just talking about how amazing it was. Go back to my dad's house in Beacon Hill. And uh, I remember I got a giant coffee and I got a big thing of Sour Patch Kids and it was like one in the morning. And uh, I just started writing. And I think I handed it that one in at like 5, 5.30. It's probably, probably my favorite column I ever wrote just because I was so drained emotionally from everything. And I just didn't have, I had, my tank was on E. I had, my brain wasn't even working. It somehow I wrote about everything. And uh, went up the next day and I talked to the editor-in-chief, John Papanick, at the time. And I was like, I'm just burned out. I don't, I don't know if I can write a game six column. Like, I, I'm, just, I'm, I'm just, I'm literally fried. I got nothing left. And he gave me this great speech about, you know, our site's taken off. This is the first time the internet has really become, uh, you know, a, a truly important part of the sports fan experience. Like, we, we are right there with everything people around the country are reading what you're writing about the Red Sox and you got to suck it up. Like this is, you you know, this is something you probably would have killed for seven, eight years ago. And, and I was like, you're right. I got to suck it up. This is like, I've been waiting my whole life for this. And, uh, so I wrote game six, game seven, all through the next series. And, um, the reason I'm telling that is because now ESPN.com is at the, the 20 year mark. And, you know, it's, it's 78 million uniques per month or whatever the hell it is. It's be easily the number one place. They do doing video. The site has blossomed in a whole bunch of different ways. But it's really interesting that once upon a time, it was this kind of little, you know, it just wasn't a big place. And it wasn't a place that even seemed like it could develop the, the personalities that could reach all kinds of people. I remember they hired Peter Gammons just to write his baseball column only. They stole him from the Globe in I think 2000 and I thought that was the biggest moment in the history of of uh, sports coverage on the internet because that was the first time you actually had to go to ESPN.com to read Peter Peter Gammons you actually had to go to the internet to read Peter Gammons and that to me was the all-time game changer because once they got him and once people like my dad had to figure out how to get to ESPN.com um, that changed everything. And there's some other stuff that happened, right? People could forward hyperlinks. Um, people didn't know how to do that in the late 90s. People would just copy-paste columns, and people didn't know what a hyperlink was. Now people know how to share content. Social media, I think, in 2009 really, really changed the game in a lot of ways um, with how people can see your stuff. But in the late 90s and early 2000s, it was really about trying to stand out and stand out from other people and figure out ways to get people to come to you and keep coming. And I think ESPN.com, the brand was a part of it, but you had some really smart people there at the time that figured out all these different ways that the site should should and could stand out, could and should stand out. And uh, you know, to see where it's gone now and to, to think that it's been 20 years is, is, is if, in a lot of ways, it feels like 50 or 60 um, and in some ways it does like stuff like me being up at five thirty in the morning, writing that column, like that, it feels like it was a month ago. Um, but it's certainly the place that gave me a chance. 
and uh, and I worked with some great people along the way: Jay Levinger and Kevin Jackson, Mike Philbrick, um, John Papanek, obviously Walsh and Skipper, um, Rob King, on and on down. David Schoenfeld, who edited my column for a big chunk of the mid two thousands, um, and so on and so on. And um, I definitely got better as a writer and as a thinker. Um, just from working for these guys. And I look at like some of the stuff I did in 2001, 2002, I didn't really know what I was doing. I kind of, by about 2008, 2009, I really kind of figured out what I was doing. And it was a decade long of just trial and error, trying to figure out stuff. But um, the reason I'm telling that story is because first of all, everybody asked me like how I ended up here, but also, um, you know, I really did almost quit twice. I almost quit in, 96 and I almost quit in 2000. Like I literally almost gave up. So, you know, I, I always get emails from people who, you know, are writers who are trying to figure out what to do with their life or, you know, they're hoping for some break or whatever. And it's, there's really no way to help anybody. There's no magic sentence to tell somebody, but, um, you know, because really it comes down to, are you willing to outwork everybody else? Are you willing to do whatever it takes to get, to get a chance. Um, and if you get that chance, how hard are you going to work once you get it? And that's it. It, There's no, there's no magic, magic comment other than that. It's like, you just have to work harder than everybody else. You read any story about anyone who, who did well. And I guarantee at some point in there, it's something about outworking people. Um, and for me, I, I almost quit twice. I easily could have, I probably should have. Um, and then when I got to ESPN.com, finally, I just, that was it. Like I knew that was my chance and I, I was going to work my ass off and I worked so hard that I probably got burned out. I mean, I was writing 10,000 words a week, every week, um, for a month straight or, or for a year straight and on top of my own site. And I just got kind of burned out. So, um, you know, that's my story. Um, ESPN.com 20 years, the most important person that whole time was John Walsh because, um, and we had a lot of battles along the way and I want to have him on a podcast at some point to talk about it. But, um, in a lot of ways he was my creative conscience and we didn't always agree. Um, but I always respected his opinion. He always respected where I was coming from. And there's no question that, um, that my career wouldn't have gone the way it did if it wasn't for him. So that's it. That's my ESPN.com story. Wow. That was 40 minutes. All right. Let's call, uh, Let's call uh, Wesley Morris now, and we're going to talk about movies. All right, as promised, our Pulitzer Prize winning movie connoisseur, Wesley Morris. Hey, I just I just told a 15-minute story that turned into a 40-minute story about uh, how I got to ESPN.com and uh, basically all the background leading up to how I ended up there and, and, um, and then how things changed for me once I got there and all the different ways it could have gone wrong. And the two times I could have quit. Um, Oh no, where's this going? (laughs) Well, people always ask me like, you know, give me, give me a secret or Hey, give me some advice or my nephew wants to get into sports writing. What would you tell him? And I basically said in the, in the long ridiculous monologue I just did, I said, it's really about like, you know, working as hard as possible out working everyone and not giving up. Like, I, I don't, I don't think there's a magic secret to that. What was, what was your road to getting where you got? 
with the eventually with the Boston Globe writing movie columns for them. Uh, make the you can make this quick, but were there magic. points where you were there points where you almost gave up? No, no. I mean, I don't know. My situation was weird. Um, I was in San Francisco for three years and I uh, worked at the Examiner and then I worked at the Chronicle. And it was great. I was really happy. I left after the Hearst Company bought the Chronicle and I went back to, I moved to New York and I thought I had a job and I didn't have a job because I got there right before September 11th happened. And um, that sort of just changed my life in some ways. I mean, obviously not nearly as drastically as it changed many other people's lives, but yeah. I was one of the people whose plans were affected by that. So I wound up applying for a job. I applied for a lot of jobs. I got a real serious interest that I was interested in in return from uh, the Boston Globe. And that was like a nine-month hiring process. Right. Um, and then eventually Ty Burr and I got hired at the same time. It was great. But for nine months, you thought you had it. Then you didn't know if you had it. Then you got nervous that you didn't have it. Then you had it. And it just was one of those roller coasters. Yes, it was a roller coaster. It was, but I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe I should never have gotten that job. I don't know. I feel like I was, I was qualified for it, but I was also 26 years old. Right. And so, um, you know, I mean, I think they took a chance on me way more than I took a chance on them. I, you know, I wanted the job and didn't really have anything to lose in taking it. They had a lot more to lose in hiring me. Um, but you know, I mean, I think hiring two people at the same time kind of made that a lot. It, may, it probably made that decision a little bit easier Yeah. because Tyber had, you know, he's a, a veteran entertainment writer and now, you know, he's Tyber film critic, but you know, I mean, you hire a, a seasoned, critic and then you hire somebody less season and i think it makes the and it, you know, make them equals uh it probably i think it made that decision a little easier even though it took a very long time to make what how old were you when you decided you want to write about movies probably 12 or 13 oh wow way back yeah i mean i it was do you not, have I not told the story? The story no, is basically, uh, I, I went, I was in middle school and I, we got an assignment to write about, uh, this book called, um, or this movie based on a book. We read the book and the movie. It was called April morning. Um, the, the teacher who assigned it, Mr. John Kazempel did not want us to write a book synopsis or a book report the way you normally would. He wanted us to watch the movie and then figure out what to do. So I hated the movie and I wrote about how I hated the movie. And he said to me, um, you should probably continue to do this. You should do film criticism. There's this thing where people write about things they've watched or read and they try to figure out why it worked or didn't work. And you seem like you might be good at that. So continue to do it. And so I, we had a, we had a newspaper at my high school. And so I, I wrote about movies for the high school newspaper. That was run by Mrs. Mrs. Traub. In college, same thing. Yep. Um, college, I worked at the Yale Daily News, and I reviewed movies there. And you know what's funny is I can remember all of the movies. I can pretty much remember every movie I wrote about. Between those two things, between um, the high school newspaper and college, I got a job 
at the at the Philadelphia Daily News. This was back when newspapers were aggressively recruiting young people to read yeah. for and read them. So a lot of papers had these had these youth sections, and the one at the Daily News was called Yo Fresh Ink, and I wrote movie reviews for them, and it was great. That also helped change my life. Um, there are a lot of, I mean, you know, we talk about I, last time we hung out, you and I. Uh, in public anyway, we talked about these people who helped get me to where I am. I mean, I was, I wasn't kidding about Sharon Stone, but there are a lot of other people who are much more, um, pivotal in my, in my career than, than she was. I mean, and that job, that, that daily newspaper job really was good for me. I mean, I think working at newspapers period was good for me, um, and, and, you know, even if I were doing something else writing wise, that wasn't what we're doing. Um, I think that working at a newspaper for most of my adult life, all of it really, um, up until 2013 was just really, really useful and critical and, and educational. Well, you can, and you can see it in your style because you, you don't use a lot of words to say what you're going to say. And I think I, I, that's one of the things I, I really appreciate about the way you write is the conciseness of it compared to I was kind of born – my style was born on the internet. It's just sprawling and I'm always using too many words. And uh, I don't I, think like, that's true about you. Well, I mean I've maybe it once was. It. No, but if you go back to like the early 2000s, it's like it would take me 7,000 words to write a 3,000-word piece. Um, mm-hmm. Yours – if you had started out, let, let's say you got hired by Sleet.com in 2001, you didn't have a word count. Don't you think that would have affected your style a little bit? Maybe. I mean, that all, <laughs> I almost did get hired by Sleet. Oh. And yeah, I mean, and I, 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 but in 2001, I don't know. I can't say. But I definitely think that being in a newspaper, I don't know. I, you know, it's funny that you say that about, about my conciseness because I don't feel that I'm necessarily concise, but I do think that there's a way in which I appreciate the ability to not have, I appreciate the lack of a, of a, of a hard limit on how long a piece can be. And so I don't take that for granted the way other people might, where people who've never had, I don't know. I mean, there's probably a really tasteless, analogy for for this sense of freedom that i have but i mean it is kind of like living under a dictatorship and then getting to a country that doesn't live under a democratic country where you're sort of more free to do what you want to do and express yourself i mean that is sort of how i feel about grantland now this is not to say that i was in like i didn't have right. any opinions at the paper but you know i mean i physically could not write more some weeks than 400 words on a movie that i probably had 750 words to say I got to say the best thing that happened for me as a writer was getting that ESPN, the magazine column. And mm. initially it was 670 words, which was just ludicrous. And, then, and nobody on the planet can write at that length. And I fought to get it to about 820. And 820, you can at least introduce some sort of angle. You can write it and you can wrap it up. And it's going to always have a certain ceiling, but you can do it. But when I was able to get them to extend it to 1,200, which was the last basically from 07, 08, 09, I think, um, 
that was great for me because that taught me like, you know, I could take a, a column that I would have spent 3000 words just going on and on with. And it was like, all right, I can do this in 1200. I just got to really figure out how to use my words here. And, uh, so the first draft was always like 1700 and then mm. you just start whittling down and it may, really makes you think like, do I need that sentence? Do I need this paragraph? Could that opening be tighter? And then all of a sudden you're at 1250, which is, you know, my, my thing always needed to be at 1250, but that really, really, really helped me. And I got to say, I miss having that column because the only reason I gave it up was because they changed the publishing schedule and it was this column that had to get handed in like basically a week and a half before the magazine ran. And mm. at that point it's like, well, sports is 24 seven. It's, you know, it's stuff changes every minute. Like you can't write a column 10 days before it goes up. Um, and it just, for me, that was, that was a no go, but I miss having that column. It's nice to know you have that word count, but the way you write, it almost seems like you always know there's, it's going to be around a certain length, right? Yeah. I mean, I do now. I mean, I think when I first started at Grantland, it was unclear. I usually have a pretty good sense. I mean, it's maybe not be a, it may not be a word count, but it's definitely with a given movie. I know, I know the, the points I want to make. I don't make an outline when I write. Yeah. Um, and there are probably either. some, some writers thinking, <laughs> Oh, I can tell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, I definitely know what, I want to say my friend Mark Feeney, who reads, who reads me pretty much, who reads pretty much everything I write. Um, he reads everything, pretty much everything I write, and he is the photography critic, among other things, at the Globe. Um, you know, but there'll be some weeks where he'll send me a note saying, "God, that was that was long. That was too long. I would have I would have cut that by about three hundred words." Wow. Um, and I mean, and I I like that kind of criticism. I'm 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 very thick skinned when it comes to things like that, unless you're wrong. And yeah. I think, you know, I always know, I know, you know, my body, my reaction to what you're telling me will tell you, will tell me whether or not what you're saying about me is right or wrong. And with Mark, when he says that things are too long, I believe him. But I also think that there are some weeks and you know, that the occasions in which he said that I can tell you my judge review, he thought was too long. Um, he thought my gone girl review was too long. Um, there's something else I wrote recently that he thought was too long. And I mean, I, I agree with him about the gone girl review. I just didn't know how to, I didn't know where to, to cut. And Louisa Thomas, who is like one of the best editors I've ever had. Um, I trust her and I trust her instincts. And I think she's really smart about how the rhythms of a piece flow. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I take all my cues from her when she tells me, I mean, as my editor, when she tells me that something is too long or something could be shortened. Um, she's also really good about, about making suggestions for how those things work. But I mean, usually when I sit down to write, I know there are 10 or 11 points in a long, in a long piece, something like gone girl, where there'll be 10 things I know I want to deal with. Um, I'll know the piece is done when I dealt with them all. Um, and then maybe two or three of those things or one or two of those things will probably be extraneous and I can be, I can, I don't have to talk me into cutting something. You just tell me you think it needs to be cut. I'll cut it. I'm a pretty easy edit. I think I don't push so, back a lot. So when you're writing, uh, let's say you're writing about fast seven, mm -hmm. which I did right now. It should be on the site right it's now. A good, it's a good example. Uh, <laughs> so you're, you're sitting down to write that piece. And in your head, you're thinking, here's the big picture theme I want to hit. 
But then yes. I also want to hit these eight, nine, ten points. Yes. But that's all you know. That's all I know. I don't know okay. anything else. The the rest is like um, the rest is. I mean, this is going to sound like a really pretentious analogy, but I mean, it's not really because they're the same. I mean, they're they're art forms in some ways, and it's like action painting. Like you step in front of the canvas, and you really don't have any idea. You know that the canvas is X by X dimensions. And you know the colors of paint that you have at your disposal. What you're when you shut your brain off, or when you, I mean, you don't shut your brain off when you're when you're writing necessarily. But there no, is I know a, what you mean. You, you, yeah, you want to not be, you want to not be thinking when you're writing, right? And so you want your brain, you want to, you want to go into this state where it's just your fingers are moving and you're in the middle of the words, but you're not thinking about the big picture part of it. Yeah, yeah. And so that is kind of what my experience is like. I also love writing on a deadline. I love, I mean, I love having like weeks and weeks to think about how to write something, but I also, I mean, like, you know, when someone, you know, God forbid, when someone dies, I like, I like the, the weird pressure of having to finish in a certain amount of time. I mean, that's a newspaper thing. Wait, there you like a, when people die? No, no, no. I don't like when people die. <laughs> no, <I'm kidding. laughs> uh, you love this franchise. I love this franchise. I don't know if we love it for exactly the same reasons. I know why I love the franchise. Anyone who's listened to the BS report has heard me expound the virtues of it. Uh, why even, do you even love I the franchise? Do. Why do I love it? I mean, I like ridiculous movies. I like movies that, that where impossible things happen and the movie doesn't apologize for it. It just keeps going. Um, I was, you know, I mean, I went into the first one thinking, yeah, I don't really, this is, this is just, it's going to be another summer action movie. That's not going to really speak to me. And within like 15 minutes, once I, it, it's so obvious what these movies are up to or like where in the, in movie history they fall. And yeah. I really watched the first one as, as a beach movie, as a, as a biker gang movie. Uh, and it had this very sort of classical, it wasn't, it wasn't innocence that this, that this world was, was was about but there was a kind of i mean in the context of the movies you watch those frankie and annette movies you only need to see you only need to see one of them but they're just like kids in a, i mean a subculture doing something that seems like a good time and the 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 race world in that movie the the car race world was just it just it, that first movie made it seem really alive and fun and then on top of that you know, as a as a thinker, what I'm noticing that's different from every other movie that, that was pretty much out in 2001 is that it's full of brown people. It's full of mm. like Filipinos and Mexicans and black people and people who were many of those races at the same time. And it that was exciting because they're the the protagonist of course in the first movie is the Paul Walker character who's in the FBI and goes in to infiltrate the car ring and by the end of the movie this world is so seductive and these people are so fun and and that world is so interesting to him that he decides to give up the law to be a part of it more or less or or well, like to help out his his buddies um to bring Despite everything his... full circle, I, I was telling the story before you came on about when I got hired by ESPN.com, I asked for five weeks off to try to, because I just was burned out from my site and I was going to start the column in the end of July. And I remember seeing Fast and Fast 1 
at some point, I think during the five weeks when I had off, when I was like, I'm just going to clear my head. I'm going to go to movies. And they were showing that ad. I was like, I know I'm going to like this movie. Mm-hmm. And I remember going and I, I think I went to the, uh, I think Revere had like, Revere had like one of the first <laughs> big mega complexes. So I ran on Revere and I, and it was like, you had to go on uh, I think it was 93, like take the highway for 10 minutes and you're there. Saw this movie, which was just clearly a point break ripoff. Like they, somebody got in a room at some yeah, point and said, yeah, yeah. it's going to be point break. We have this guy, Vin Diesel. He's going to be the Swayze character. And uh, and we have this guy Paul Walker. He's going to be the Keanu character. And we're just they're just going to race cars, and Paul Walker is going to cross the line a little bit, and that's how this one's going to go. But really, we're just going to race cars. And somebody greenlit it, and we went. And I saw it the day it came out on a Friday in the afternoon. I loved it, and I drove home 175 miles an hour. <laughs> I, I remember getting in the car. I was like 31 years old, like right in the wheelhouse of when I was still driving like an absolute maniac. I didn't have kids yet. I didn't have a wife. I just remember just flying on whatever highway that was from Revere to uh, Charlestown. And I was hooked. I didn't really like Fast 2 or Fast 3 that much. But uh, 4, 5, and 6 are just good movies. Yeah. No, I mean, I... I found Fast Two kind of like this is the this is the proof that the series really works in some ways because the second one none of these movies by I mean this is a this is sort of a subtopic but I mean none of these movies is in, is necessarily quote good but the second one is bad in a way that you can't resist it. Yeah. And there's, it does some, it makes some really interesting visual choices. Like I love the way John Singleton has Tyrese and, and Paul Walker when they're in their cars, the way the dashboard sort of comes, the way their, their close-up sort of share space with the dashboard yeah. and the, in the dashboard glows. I You're mean, talking some, my language right now. Yeah. I mean, there's a real way that he brings those movies to life. Couldn't and, you say that that was John Singleton's last great directorial moment? Yes, <laughs> you really I mean, could. That's pretty. That's quite. That was the end of the John, the run of John Singleton. We'll never figure out what happened. I mean, he's really interested in money. I mean, I don't blame him for that. But I mean, for a guy who, I mean, we're now in a tangent. But I think that 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 for a guy whose career began as it did, um. I think he is interested in, you know, he's a commercial director and I think he wants to do commercial things. And, mm. you know, I think, I don't know exactly why he hasn't made more movies. I mean, he's produced, I mean, he produced a couple movies in the mid 2000s after Too Fast, Too Furious. I think he did Four Brothers, which is, I don't want to say it's underrated. It's not great, but it's got a really good performance by Andre 3000. And um, you know Mark what? Wahlberg isn't bad. I'm going to defend Four Brothers. I kind of liked it. I have so nothing maybe that bad was to his say. Last about great it. moment. I didn't mind Four Brothers. Yeah, I mean Four Brothers isn't bad, but that was ten years ago, Bill. Yeah. He made that Taylor Lautner movie from t- I think it's 2011 Abduction, and then that's it. I think he did one he episode made of the Empire. Abduction. Yeah, he did that. Oh no. Yeah, I know. I know. Well, and I recently watched Boys in the Hood again, and wow. I'm telling you, it still holds up. It holds still up. It, really, I mean, really, really good. And when Ricky dies, 
and it's just devastating. It's just, and you know, it's coming every time. But I would argue that's like one of the seven or eight uh, just most gut gut wrenching deaths in a movie. It's got to be in the short list. Whatever the short list is, it's on it. Oh, this might be worth discussing at some future point. Yeah, uh, I mean, the I, champ, I, John Voight, ooh. Deborah Winger, Terms of Endearment. Oh, that's. I think that's number. One. That's at least in the top three. Have you ever seen? Have you Hooch. ever seen Imitation of Life? Hooch. Hooch. Yeah. Okay. Hooch is a, that's a, <laughs> that's, a, that's like a sleeper top 10. Have you ever seen Imitation of Life? Who's in it? Uh, Lana Turner. Oh, uh, you're going way Doug, back. No. It's a Douglas Sirk movie from like the early. Bad one. The, oh no, it's <laughs> Douglas Sirk. Bad. No, impossible. No, no, I'm saying a bad, bad emotional death. Oh yeah. It's like, you should watch that with your kids. Yeah. And this is this, I think that movie will be the real test of, of your daughter's like inability to cry in any movie we watched father of the bride and i thought that would choke her up no she's cyborg just cyborg straight through won't the 19 the 1959 imitation of life by douglas sirk try that if it doesn't work lana turner juanita moore sandra d susan conner i mean john gavin it's if 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 the if the death in that movie doesn't make anybody cry a couple uh, uh Ones that aren't like gut wrenching, but like Sonny and Godfather and Manny and Scarface from the shock value are way up there. Yeah, but not not milk like the Deborah Winger one when the son is so mad at her for whatever oh. reason and she's just trying to say goodbye to him. That, that's about as bad right as now. it gets. Yeah, no, I mean those kinds. Of, nobody dies like that anymore. You know nah. what I mean? Like what they do now, young people. I mean, when young people die in movies, usually it's Nicholas Sparks. Or something like Nicholas Sparks. It's like this fault in our stars, yeah. and, which actually did work on me, by the way. The death. I in worked movie, on me too. I saw it on an airplane. Yeah, that surprised me. I don't think the movie's good, and I kind of hate the acting. But that kid Ansel Elgort, and I like Shalane Whitley fine. But the, the the death in that movie really, oh man, it yeah. really it got to me. I I did not enjoy that. Um, you know, another one I saw it on an airplane that had a, a surprising death was. Uh, Whatever that terrible James Marsden movie was with uh, the uh, uh, what's uh, Michelle Moynihan? Did you see that oh. movie? Oh, oh, uh, um, Memories of Me, something, something me. like that. It was like when I say it was the only airplane choice. Like, trust me. <laughs> uh, and I ended up, of course, getting into it because when you're trapped on an airplane, you can basically talk yourself into any movie. Oh man, I guess is it is it Welcome to Me? Something like that. Is that what it is? We've fantasy and I in the Grantland office had it. This is going to be like the most cliched sounding sentence about Grantland probably you could have, but we actually had a James Marsden argument. Oh boy. Yeah. I, about, I defend James Marsden. How about I that? Love James I like Marsden. James Marsden. I love James Marsden. I think his career should have been better. And it should have like, been no. better. Fantasy's like, no. No, his career is exactly what it should have, like in that classic Sean Fantasy, just I'm right, everyone else is wrong, dismissive. Um, Here's the thing about, about there's two things about James Marsden. Thing number one is he, he, made, he was stuck as Cyclops in people's brains for a long time. Yeah. Um, and I think that deserved him because he got beat up on for not being a charismatic Cyclops, but that means you don't understand Cyclops. So, um, I think he's a really good Cyclops. And then I think he wound up sort of trying to recover from that. 
he was in rom com. He was in the rom com uh, whirlpool for a while, and which doesn't but, help. But no, but he's good in that. He's mode. really good in rom coms. Yeah, he's really good. The problem is the material. Like he, he's not a star in that way. If you, the thing about James Marsden is, I can't believe that the people. I think the thing that sort of kept him going for as long as he has been since 2007 was people who saw him in Enchanted finally got it. They got oh. this guy who seemed like a kind of fairly humorless, stick-in-the-mud sort of actor, maybe self-serious, kind of mad that he's not Tom Cruise. No. He can do a whole other thing that Tom Cruise could never do. And that thing is be self-mockingly funny. And his prince in Enchanted is so funny and so that is one of the like most i mean charming ha 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 uh it is extremely charming and 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 winking and funny and knowing i love enchanted i love and him that, in that and also a movie that maybe could have in the wrong hands been a disaster and Total they just kind of lucked out with the two actors and i mean they lucked out oh, i also in. think the songs okay. are smart yeah, and I think that uh, I think that the choreography. I mean, I, that's a movie that works on every single level. Alan Menken willing to make fun of himself. Um, well, as a, as the dad of a daughter, yeah, uh, that movie has been out in my house a few times, so yeah. I'm, I'm well aware of Marsden in uh, in that movie. And, and then I think Thirty I Rock say, is Anchorman, the other thing. Anchorman Two, he's really good. Anchorman Two is aging very nicely for me on oh, the Epics no. channel, and he's really good as Jack Lame. It's he funny. Is, it's he good in that good. movie. But I don't think he should play assholes. That's the thing. But in that he, one, he's a self-aware, smarmy, over-the-top, being funny asshole. Right. But I think that he gets stuck in this asshole mood. That's why I liked him on 30 Rock so much, too. Yeah. I mean, he he was really... He has this vulnerability, and I think I like that they, that, that they wrote him as kind of a doofus. Yeah. But a really charming doofus. Like, this is a guy you really could... I mean, he was the perfect guy for Liz Lemon. Perfect. Well, here's the you thing. Know? Fantasy is wrong. We're right. And he's just got to suck it up. And you know what else, Fantasy? I drafted Matt Harvey in our in our <laughs> Grantland Baseball League. And I knew Fantasy wanted him. And I took him like a round and a half early. And I'm going to hold him hostage the whole year. You don't get to have him either, Fantasy. Um, I'm going to wait and see. I want to hear Fantasy's argument for why he's exactly right. Because things... You know, I think no, he's doing. Just, he didn't have an argument. It was just typical fantasy. He's just, he's just dismissive. <laughs> just he thought what he wanted to think, and everybody else was wrong. Well, that's um, too bad. I, I'm pro. I'm Marsden. If you're listening, you got two people in your corner. I'm, I'm very much in your corner, James Marsden. Yeah. Think you're uh, so fast and furious. Another corner I'm in is the Vin Diesel corner, mm. and uh, and I wrote about this when I did my Action Hero Championship belt. He kind of wasn't interested in defending the belt for whatever reason and made a whole bunch of kids' movies and weird comedies for probably for huge paychecks. But um, he's one of my favorite action people. And whoever thought to team him in the rock up. That's just which, genius. And supposedly they don't like each other at all off the set, which I love. It's a fun little backstory for every fast movie that both of them are in. Uh, but they, it just, they work really well together. Well, they don't have really much to do in the third and the seventh movie uh -oh. like, together. Oh, like they have, a, I think one scene. Well, you'll see. I'm not going to. Because they don't like each other. I'm telling you. Yeah, maybe. They're probably maybe. like, oh, I'll do Fast 7, but I'm not. I, I'm just one scene with Vin. That's it. <laughs> well, yeah, I think it really is one scene. Yeah. But the thing is, the, I mean, the genius of having them just 
physically be in the same movie, whether they like each other or not, is it's kind of, I mean, it, it sort of gets at what is so great about these movies beyond how well done the action sequences are. And I would say that Fast Five, the sixth one, and Furious Seven have some of the best stunt work I have ever seen yeah. in movies. And I think the care and the planning that goes into those sequences is so good and so exciting and so over the top that, I mean, you kind of can't believe that it, that it's taken the entire history of movies to get back to the great action sequences of the silent era and like yeah. the early sound days. But these action sequences are like comedically amazing. I mean, they're, I mean, I don't, that came out wrong, but they are so amazing that they're actually funny. They're not inherently funny, but they're, and there's comedy in them, but you just can't believe some of the stuff in Furious 7. Like, there well, is it, is it more outrageous than Vin Diesel crashing his car so he goes flying in midair so he can catch Michelle Rodriguez in midair and then they land on a car and they're both fine? Yes. Okay, the, great. There, this is there good are news. things that, that double down on that, like, anti science notion of what a body should or should not be able to do in a yeah. non superhero movie. Yes. It's kind of astounding. There well, are, fat- there are equally similar, like, falling onto car roofs and that sort of thing. Yeah, Fast Six had somewhere between 15 and 19 people just able to jump on a moving car without falling <laughs> off, which – I see, I love it because it's I like – I love it. You, they're going to go over the top anyway. So their attitude is if we're going to go over the top, we're going way over the top. Like we're just – people have bought into this anyway, so let's just exploit that and we'll keep going. I've got a question for you. Yeah. When I can, I I can't actually remember. I can remember the first over the top action sequence I ever saw in a movie, mm. but I don't remember. I I mean, sort of the brief history of crazy highway action sequences. The first thing I can think of is maybe Lethal Weapon Two, or something along those lines. It's like a Lethal Weapon movie. That's the first time I can remember a ridiculously death defying action sequence shot. You know, from beginning to end with people hanging out of cars, leaping onto tractor trailers, falling off a windshield, hiding under the, under the chassis of a, of a, of, or, you know, the underbelly of a, of a, of a speeding truck. So we're talking late eighties. Cause yeah, definitely yeah, early eighties didn't, they were all conventional. Um, right. They were car to, chases. Maybe, when was Die Hard? 88? Die Hard was 88. Yeah. That was the first that was one. that was the first one that it got a little outlandish that I can remember. Yeah, I mean, I just have Giant, a memory of Mel Gibson's hair. Which well, one? Nah, Mel. I just remember Mel Gibson's hair really blowing during a sequence. Uh, Schwarzenegger. Those, you know, the Rambo, uh, Commando, Predator. Yeah, but hmm. this is a different thing, though. We're like, I mean, maybe there's something in Rambo that I'm not remembering. That's well, Rambo sort of... two, you see, you blocked Rambo two out of your mind. Rambo two was the first. If we're just going suspension of disbelief, mm-hmm. Rambo two was the one where it's like, all right, you have multiple Vietnamese people shooting at him from twenty feet away, and he has time to turn around, load <laughs> his gun, and then just start shooting them and and picking them off one at a time. And it's like, this is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, I remember in the theater thinking, like, wow, this is ridiculous. Um, Cobra yes. was very, very, very oh, ridiculous. Yeah, Cobra for sure. But but I Tango and Cash. 
Like eight, oh. probably somewhere between eighty four and eighty nine, if the wheels yeah. came off. Yeah, Tango and Cash is eighty nine, right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's eighty nine. Die Hard um, was eighty eight. Lethal Weapon two was somewhere in the late eighties. So it's probably somewhere in there that they just started pushing the envelope. I mean, Speed, the bus jump and Speed, that became the gold standard for a while. Yeah, remember I when mean, that the the oh, the highway is not finished. We're going to have to jump. <laughs> <laughs> they just, the bus goes up somehow. It's going, it's, it should be just going straight down into a fiery abyss. It somehow goes up. Yeah, it's pretty great. I That in general, like where in LA could you drive over 55 miles an hour for long stretches of time? <laughs> that, that movie is outrageously ridiculous. No, I mean, it's funny that, that the great action sequences, many the great chase sequences – Happened to be set in Los Angeles too, right? Where like downtown yeah. is the most navigable place on earth, and you can tell they shot, they cleared out the street and shot it at three a.m. Like mm. it just—that's why. I mean, the Fast, the Furious Seven, the, the one of the climaxes is set at night in downtown Los Angeles, and it's just really—it's so charmingly fantastical how they're able to get around the way that they are with a predator drone chasing after them. It's <laughs> right. It's just so good. It's so good. You know, um, what was, uh, oh crap. I just brain farted. What were you talking uh, about? We're talking about unrealistic locations. Sure. Boston blown away. Jeff Bridges (laughs) and Tommy Lee Jones. Oh yeah. Who could forget? Which I just have a variety of problems with. Do not, do not ever bring that movie up to me after I've had four drinks, but the climactic scene is this downhill chase, downhill car chase, and they're just going downhill for five minutes. And there's nowhere in Boston that you can go downhill for more than three blocks. And they're just going... They kept using Beacon Hill and I think in in Commonwealth and like right where the park is and Mm -hmm. just figuring out different ways to cut the same downhill but with different (laughs) streets. And it's like... And I saw it in Boston and people were like recoiling. It was like, what... (laughs) And then somehow it ends up with they're, they're in the park next to Beacon Hill pulling in that way. And it's like, I've never seen such a brazen disregard for the actual physics of a city than that movie. Yeah. No, I mean, it happens. Blown away. I mean, we, I mean, you can start with, uh, you can start with, uh, the, the, you, the sort of misappropriation of the topography of Boston. And then you have yeah. to go immediately to the crazy plot, which that movie would never come out today, by the way. It just would be impossible. I mean, no, even though it's it, all about Northern Ireland, it would just it would just be too hard to do now. And also, no, yeah, it, I don't think it cannot be done. It. Hey, I've got a question I think the verdict, for you. Go ahead. Another question for you uh, regarding uh, Blown Away, Susie yeah. Amos. Inexplicable, really <laughs> weird three year run. Yeah, Her and Penelope I, Ann Miller. I oh. will be ex- trying to explain it fifty years from now. They yeah. just all of a sudden were getting great parts for like three years apiece each. So she's in a class, and I'm, I saw this actress a couple nights ago in a in the new Nicholas Sparks movie, um, Lolita Davidovich. Yeah, remember her? Yes, she plays Liked the her. mom in that movie. I just thought, yeah, Lolita, Lolita Davidovich. She was a thing. She was a real thing for about three years. It's almost like basketball, where yeah. t- the talent comes in waves, and you look back and you think like. How is Penelope Ann Miller the best person they could have cast for Kindergarten Cup? <laughs> well, like she, it, I mean, she made she sense in the that audition. Part. Huh? 
I mean, she made sense in that part. I mean, she, like, we talked about this a little bit last time, that sort of Bridget Fonda level of, of, of actor, like Penelope Ann Miller was one of those people. I mean, she yeah, Jennifer had Jennifer Jason Lee's another one. How did well, she get but Jennifer like, Jason Lee was, I mean, Jennifer Jason Lee is an actress, like a really, yes. but how did she, she end up in single weight female? Because she wanted to be in a hit. She was tired of being in a, like, she was tired of being a weirdo. I mean, she was a weirdo in that movie, but I mean, if she was going to be weird, she was going to be weird in something that was going to make some money. She was tired of being a weirdo, so she was in single white female. Right. I mean, I'm saying if she was going to be weird, she should be weird in something people want to see. I love that movie. And I think uh, there's a couple scenes in that movie that are just outrageously good. Yeah. No, I mean, it like that movie really does. It's ridiculous. But I mean, it's one of those blank from hell movies that actually does get your blood. It's boiling. a great blank from hell movie. Yeah. Hey, you know, Steven really Weber is somebody nobody's Ooh. ever been ex- able to explain to me why his career didn't why he didn't do better. I was like Steven Weber. He, I mean, with all due respect to Steven Weber, who I think is a very handsome, decent act. actor up, up to a point. But he, there are just too many other people like fighting for that space he'll never get he'll 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 never get a clear lane to do whatever it is that he can do it's he had a moment now. huh it's too late for him now but like it why he he's probably very jealous of kevin bacon i think that's his market yeah, correction no i mean he i mean i think kevin bacon mark corrected a lot of people he really did um, and so did omar epps omar epps market corrected <laughs> the shit out of people yeah, no, I mean, there are a lot of guys who didn't quite rise to the top. I mean, look at more, Omar Epps, though. I mean, I, I think market corrections for black actors, I, I have a hard, harder time with that because, I mean, I just think their options are just like, I think the market market corrects them. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, they're already corrected. Right. There, there's no, there really is no, I mean, really, ultimately, who did, who was Omar Epps stealing roles from and what roles was he stealing from them? I mean, he and Mackay Pfeiffer, I think, were occupying the same zone for a long time. Yeah. And I think that they just, I mean, I don't think they're so radically different that they wound up doing different things. But I think the industry expanded just enough for Omar Epps and Mackay Pfeiffer to be doing similar things in different movies for, I mean, they had a good stretch where they were in a lot of stuff for a, for a while. That's Can we go back and... to Lolita Davidovich for a second? Do you know who she's yeah. married to? Yeah, but, uh, Ron Shelton. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I just thought that's really interesting. She and Penelope Ann Miller, good runs in the eighties. Really good runs. Wait, yeah. uh we have to go soon. So oh, you're telling well, so tell America to see Fast Seven, right? That's yes. the, your article, your column slash review went up today. Yes. Um last thing we gotta talk about. HBO mm-hmm. canceled looking. Oh, um which you wrote about last year. Um, which had a better second season than its first season. Yeah. And uh unfortunately there's uh one of the principles that networks have is people have to actually watch the shows for them to keep renewing them. And uh, nobody watched the show. And they, had to, they had to get rid of it. Um, what were your thoughts? Uh, about it's about it's being canceled yeah. or about the show. No, well, I know you like the show cause we've talked about it. I think that it was inevitably going to get canceled. I mean, I, I, I understand. I mean, I'm not a business person. HBO is not my, I don't work for HBO. Uh, I understand why they chose to do it. Uh, I also think that given what's currently on that network and who it's allegedly for or about or whatever, I mean, I think if you're HBO, you just say everything's for everybody. Yeah. But I think this was a show that was aimed at 
as broad a possible audience without compromising the lives of the people in the show as a show could possibly be about. You know, I mean, it was limited, obviously, by the fact that it's about gay men. It's it's further limited by the fact that they're um, mostly middle class, upper middle class or at least, you know, the main character is, I think it's even further limited by the fact that it's in San Francisco. I mean, there are a lot of things that sort of keep pushing this movie or that keep pushing this show farther away from any sort of... Right. And so what you have to go on, I mean, you have this really smart, really good writer named Andrew Hay who who co-created and and wrote a lot of the show um, and directed some episodes. Um... And is always around in terms of its creative direction. And I think that he, I think the second season kind of figured out what he wanted to do with those people. I, I'm not a big Kevin. I'm not a big fan of Kevin as a partner. I just don't trust this guy. Um, I never point though. Yeah, I think so. Right. I think that Richie built up to that as the point. Right. Right. And I think that I never, I never tried. I was, there was always a suspense with me where I was like, I just don't believe this guy likes Patty. I just don't believe it. And I think there, I mean, the show was really smart about the demographics of those two guys. Um, it was really good about a kind of racism in, in the gay community that does exist and is very real. Um, and there's so many things about that show that it had an opportunity that that it won't get a chance to 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 go into that it was really on the verge of of dealing with. I like that it's a character-driven show that isn't dealing with like things happening in the world today. Yeah. Um I mean it just I don't know, I'm going to miss it. There won't be anything like it. Um I think that the acting, I mean, as, as a comedy, I was always surprised when I laughed because, you know, it's not really set up for that. All the comedy is situational, but in a very, a pitch at a very human scale. Did you watch every episode, by the way? You were, you were in from the beginning, right? I, well, my wife loved it. And so initially I was half watching it and then I just thought it was so well written and, mm-hmm. um, especially the second season and really well acted, really well acted. Um, I thought the second season was excellent and two, two people stood out for me. One was the lead actor, the guy who played Patrick. I just think that guy's really talented. Like that guy's going to have, yeah, Jonathan Groff. He's going to have a great career. I don't know what he's going to do with his life. Um, he did a voice in frozen. I think he's all set. (laughs) Oh, there you go. Um, cause that character, the first year was, you know, kind of pathetic. He was, he was a, a loser in a lot of ways, but like weirdly likable. And then, he, they headed him down this path the second season where he's with this guy who was clearly playing him to a lot of degrees and I didn't trust him either. Um, and you're kind of like, oh man, like you're going to, th- this is going to end badly. But I was rooting for the guy. And I think, I don't know in the hands of a lot of actors that character works. So I liked him. And uh, I just thought the show was so well written. Like Andrew Hay, I think, is just going to go on to better things. So you lose the show, but that guy's clearly going to go on to do things that are going to matter. So in a, in a weird way, the show's going to live on with whatever some of the people from it did. I thought the most interesting thing they did in the second season was the female character whose name I can't remember. Oh, who had, um, Doris. Yeah, you, you see that like Entourage tried this with Debbie Mazer. I think that's how you say her name, where it was like uh, Vince's PR person. She's going to come in and have a couple sassy lines. And it's like you become like a character of the character. 
this second season, they actually built her into a real character. And I, I thought the best episode of the whole season was when they went, when she went with her old boyfriend who then came out of the closet and they became best friends and they went, somebody died and they had to go back. Her father, and, yeah. And it was just a great episode. It was yeah. really, really, really great. And, uh, and she was great in it. And, um, I just thought they had figured out the show and I was excited to see where it was going. I, I, I was surprised I liked it as much as I did. I, I just, I'm always going to gravitate toward good writing and good acting. And I thought that show had the best writing and the best acting of any cable show. So let me ask you before we go, like, were you, cause I've, you know, my friend, uh, Kevin Arnovitz and I have a lot of conversations about why people don't respond. Like who's watching the show and why aren't people watching the show? Yeah, and it's a I mean, good so question. initially, what was it for you? I know that that, that your wife was watching it, but I mean, would is that a show that like if I'd give you the 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 tagline or the logline, you would have you would have watched it? Three three friends in San three gay friends in San Francisco. Yeah, you know, I mean, maybe my experiences in, in life have been a little different because, like, you know, my dad's brother's gay, so this is I've always been kind of interested, like he's had a life that has been his own life and I'm close to him, but he also has a whole bunch going on with his life that I don't know about. And just going into that world was interesting, you mm-hmm. know, cause it's like, I don't know anything about that world. And, um, but I also wouldn't have liked the show if, if, uh, if it wasn't well written and well acted, I wouldn't have cared, you know, like mm-hmm. I never watched the, the last time anyone tried a show that was this ambitious around a bunch of gay friends was queer as folk. Right. Yeah, but I mean, that's like one show. of the major channels. Yeah, but I mean, and that's I, you not know, a which, show I ever watched. Right. I mean, and I think that there's a way, you know, initially when the show started, gay men were upset because or they weren't upset, but they were a little disgruntled because it was sort of normalizing gay life and it wasn't it wasn't really interesting enough. People called it heteronormative because right they weren't doing things that I think we're used to seeing gay men do. The sex wasn't interesting. And I don't know. I mean, <laughs> there are weeks, there are months, many, many months where there is no sex. Right. Um, there are many months where you're just really hanging out with people and you're trying to figure your life out. And I, I think that the, 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 the achievement of that show was, and I think it got better at this in the second season because I think it did take some of those criticisms seriously and it kind of listened to – I think it was less self-conscious about how to do what it was doing. I agree. Um, and I just – I think that the thing that that turns people off about a show like Looking is ultimately – you know, I think it's kind of political. I think there isn't enough – it isn't crazy enough. I mean, Queer as Folk – I mean, I don't know if the numbers for Queer as Folk were better, but I think that I know more people talked about Queer as Folk. Um, and the L Word, I think, too. I think that one was certainly yeah, the L more too. known and popular than right, right. Um, right. Here's the thing, though. I don't think the, the genesis of why I thought the show worked wasn't different, as weird as it sounds, than the genesis of season one of Friends. Season one of Sex in the City, season no. one of Entourage. It's like, here's totally this group agree. of people come into their world, and it's about the relationships between these people and the weird things that are going on with them. And it's the same. We've seen that principle work 20 other times with shows. And yeah. 
I just felt like it were I don't I don't think we'll ever have a better version of this show with three or four gay friends. Here's I, what I'll it, say. And if this didn't work, that worries me. Yeah, no, I agree. And I also think I mean, there are a couple I just want to point out two things that'll that'll never happen. That might I mean, you know, someday in twenty years when when I mean when it's I don't know. I'm so bad at predicting like like social trends in popular culture taking root and remaining permanent, I would have thought the Fast and Furious movies would have opened up a huge window for these sort of multiracial, multi-ethnic action movies in which, you know, the what there you know, there is no sort of dominant star and the people in the movies are 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 non white. That yeah. hasn't really happened. And in the same way that I sort of feel like, you know, Empire is going to change TV. It really isn't. But I do think that this show did two things that I thought were really amazing. It spent that whole episode with Richie and Patrick going on that date, episode three or four of season one. And in that same, anytime that Richie and Augustine had a conversation, I thought, I felt like I was seeing something I had, I had definitely never seen in an American television show, which is two gay Hispanic men from different areas of of the of of hispanic life talking to each other in spanish it just like this happens every day in san francisco but on tv it is like it is a unicorn conversation and there was this really amazing crackle of tension and energy between those two guys that had nothing to do with their being i mean it wasn't about their being gay it was it was very much about their choices as as men and their sort of like skepticism of each other kind of around this white guy but also around their lives and i think that got complicated and played out over the course of this like in a couple episodes in the second season that's the kind of thing that a show like this is brave enough and interesting enough to do without treating it as special or event worthy um and Nobody else on TV, on American television, is doing anything really that much closer to that. There's stuff on the Fosters that I think is really interesting that happened that sort of along these lines. But, I mean, for for something like HBO to be do, I mean, I, I don't know. I just, it, it's it's what a rare thing to happen. Thing? You said there are two things. Oh, the uh, the other, thing? well, the first was the date. The second was the, was that, the conversations between. Oh, I got gotcha. you. Um, okay. Frankie and, um, or Augustine and, and Richie. It was uh, it was a really good show, and yeah. um, they're going to do know. a special. They're going to have a like a final what they're two hour movie, episode? right? Yeah, yeah, maybe and maybe maybe they that'll be how it plays out, where they have uh, movies every once in a while or something. But I I appreciate that they tried it. I mean, HBO has gotten to a place when you know whatever they try, it's the it's the number one destination place for anything, and um. You know, even like what they did with uh, Robert Durst and that the serial idea, which they had been working on before serial became a hit, but trying that in documentary form, I thought was really cool. Um, all the choices they make at least seem like they have thought beyond them. So, yeah, no, I mean, it's, um, it's a great show, and it gave a lot of really good directors some really good work. I mean, not just Andrew Hay, but Michael Lannan and Roberto Aguirre Sacasa, and um, who else? Uh, uh, Ryan Fleck did an episode. Yeah, I was I surprised mean, by that. Yeah, uh, uh, Joe Swanberg did an episode. I mean, I don't know. I just really um, wait. I might have. I might. Jamie Babbitt did an episode. I was naming. I think those. I think 
uh, Aguirre Sacasa is a, is a writer, but Ryan Fleck, Andrew Hay, Jamie yeah. Babbitt, um, some really good directors, Joe Swanberg. I mean, some, 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 in, some really interesting independent directors, um, got to do some episodes, but Andrew Hay directed most of them, if I'm not mistaken. Well, you know, what's going to happen to that show. It's going to become one of those critically acclaimed canceled too soon shows that I think will get thrown into that mix in yeah. 10 years from now. People will be. I think it'll have a shelf life is my point. Yeah. I think I'd like to see the enlightened movie. Talk about HBO shows that got canceled too soon. Yeah. I didn't think the comeback was really worth bringing back, but Ugh. I think enlightened, I think enlightened was, is a show that, that, I mean, that third season of, of enlightened would have been one of, I believe it would have been one of the best seasons of television. Um, mm. to air on. I mean, it's what, I mean, it was just headed in this really, crazy important social direction and i feel like it had a really really good manic energy yeah that hb i mean i don't know i mean i don't blame hbo for canceling it i mean they have they have a job to do but i really felt like that show was going somewhere really strong wesley morris we will read you on greatland.com we might even get together for a little summer movie TV preview potentially. Who knows? It's gonna happen. Off, it's gonna happen. Off the off uh, the roaring success of our Grantland Oscar preview, where we did everything right except for factor in the part that we were taping it third week of January, and the Stephen Hawking guy became a freight train right after the taping, and uh, and locked up Best Actor about two weeks later, and we had no idea that was gonna happen. Oh well. Yeah. Oh well. How did I? He, I still don't understand how that happened. Oh my we god! We taped that show. And it was like it Michael Keaton was a twenty to one favorite. You, you gotta let it go. I mean, it's I can't really let it not. Go. You're looking at the lines. I mean, I'm telling you, it really isn't shocking at all when you really <sighs> think about it. And I don't think we missed it. I just don't think we we're like he's definitely gonna win. I mean, it was a toss up between those it. two guys. It was we pretty it. obvious. I that blame it, myself. I'm taking it to my grave. Well, Michael, Keaton we had everything thanks else you for taking it so hard. We had it. We knew everything. We figured out everything else. Like we kind of saw, but that one, man. Yeah. Hey, by the way, I don't feel nearly as bad as Michael Keaton does. I don't. You think talk about hey, we thinking you had it. He had like that three week. Once he got that Golden Globe, he's like, "This is gonna be great. It's gonna be a two month victory lap for me." Yeah, I don't. Oh, know. Well, I mean, you never know. You just kind of move. I mean, it's really he'll he'll get work he would not have gotten previously. Yeah. I mean, so there. I mean, that is the real win. He's sneaky old, by the way. He's like sixty-three. I didn't. I thought I didn't realize he was as old as he was. So he's yeah, got about seven, eight years left. Uh, Wesley Morris. Oh my God, you just no, not to die, but no. Like, I mean, you just you gave him a career and, shelf life. You've set you're seventy now. You're the grandfather in ensemble movies. Yeah, I mean, sixty-three. Really, that's the that's the new forty-three. Uh, I hope so because I like Michael Keaton. Wesley. Thanks, as always. Talk to you soon on the BS Report. Everybody have a great weekend. Sorry this was a particularly weird BS Report, but we had to do it. Uh, Happy anniversary to ESPN.com. Talk to you next week. Happy anniversary. Thank you for downloading the BS Report with Bill Simmons. Too much fun. Check out more podcasts at the iTunes Music Store or at PodCenter at ESPNRadio.com. Peace out.